Camera speed. Camera set. Action. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Moving Pictures, the Project DU Film Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Rose, and here with me is my wonderful co-host, Abby Scadden, and the amazing Dr. Sheila Schroeder. So great to have you both here. Thanks for it's having us. great to be back, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and today we are joined by Dr. Lauren DeCarvalho, one of University of Denver's highly esteemed film and media professors. Dr. DeCarvalho received her PhD in mass communications from Penn State and is now an assistant professor here at the University of Denver, where she teaches film theory, experimental film production, women in film, and many other film and media-oriented classes. Her research focuses on the social constructions of gender and its intersection with other identities within media and popular culture. Today, she is here with us to talk about representation of women in film, part two of our Women in Film series. Lauren, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Let's jump in. How did you get into researching women in film and media? Ooh, so a curveball. Okay, so going back to, I was always interested in media, basically. My undergraduate degree is in broadcast journalism with a heavy focus in uh, women, gender mm -hmm. studies. Um, and I was really interested at first in becoming a female anchor. Mm. Um, because I looked and I thought, where are the female anchors? Where are the female anchors of color in particular, like myself? And so I decided to research uh, and go into journalism in undergrad, um, graduated, decided I didn't really like that, and decided to go back to grad school. Mm. I always knew I wanted to get my master's degree, and so I went back. And one of my most um, passionate and inspiring professors, she was a film professor. Her name was Dr. Jeannie Hall. Um, she has since uh, passed away, but she, I didn't, I've never met anyone who is so passionate about what they're talking about and teaching and just loving life and just exuding just so much passion in the classroom, mm -hmm. right? And I thought, wow, here's a woman that really has her stuff together, who really understands, you know, what it's like to work, but also really value her work and, you know, be very meaningful in the classroom and outside of the classroom. And I wanted to do that. And so mm -hmm. I, I decided to study women in film. And so that's where I kind of, that was the starting point for going down the rabbit hole, basically. Mm, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Now, this is sort of a broad question, um, but how would you see gender representation in film and media? Okay. So that's a very broad <laughs> question. Can of worms. Yes. Yeah. Can of worms. So, well, specifically, I tend to research the intersection of gender with other identity markers. So, for instance, you can look at occupation as one of the intersections. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that intersection and how it's represented by media, um, gender plays a huge role in terms of how it plays out on screen. Um, and so if you're going down that example of occupation, if you're looking specifically at the workplace and issues um, of representation with the workplace, um, and my specialty is the post-recession era, so looking at the Great Recession of 2007, 2009, and kind mm -hmm. of going from there, you saw what was happening Whereas a lot of women on screen were taking different approaches than their male counterparts in terms of work. Mm -hmm. Even though they were just as qualified, they were forced to kind of take underhanded, manipulative approaches in order to get by, in order to achieve their work, while being also advised by men who were in comparable situations or maybe a little bit better or sometimes even worse, who were kind of guiding them on how to approach their problems, right? Mm. And so if you're looking, for example, at let's take um, NBC sitcoms. Right around the end of the 
official end of the recession, which was 2009, NBC was releasing a lot of sitcoms that dealt with women contradicting their own principles in order to achieve work, um, and men really serving as male authority figures, a lot of voices of moral authority. You had an increased presence of trivialization or tolerance of sexual harassment, uh, rape, other mm. serious issues that women face every day at the workplace. You also saw that women who were more successful were usually depicted or conveyed as being more crazy or extreme. Uh, and so these are just some of the ways that gender really impacts how what we're seeing on screen and how that's represented. Do you see any differences in how gender is represented in mainstream media versus more independent outlets? For example, Hollywood versus the Colorado film scene? While I can't speak to the Colorado scene in particular, I just feel like I'm too new. I can speak more generally to independent outlets um, and the nature of independent outlets in um, comparison to the mainstream media. So when you have mainstream media, you tend to have much more circumscribed roles when it comes to gender, right? You tend to have a perspective that's mainly straight, white, cis, male. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because the Old Boys Network is at work in Hollywood. And so you tend to see the same perspective being held. Mm -hmm. um, while in independent outlets, you tend to be see more um, different voices, different perspectives. And I don't want to mislead anyone by saying that, you know, independent outlets are a panacea by any means, right? They surely have the same exact problems that are going on in Hollywood, only at, you know, smaller scales. Um, at the same time, they tend to provide more opportunities mm -hmm. for people of color, women, et cetera, to be uh, on screen and also behind the scenes, which mm -hmm. is crucial. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to piggyback on that, I think what you also see in some of the research is that um, more independent outlets have more women, people of color, um, working behind the scenes. Hmm. And so when you have, for instance, a woman director, you are going to have a more diverse crew. Hmm. Um, the statistics bear that out. Absolutely. So it, it speaks to those issues of um, power hmm. uh, and how we can change this, this system, which, which we know is flawed, hmm. critically flawed, um, by, by changing the leadership at the top. Right. Yeah. That's one way. Yeah. And we see that, of course, with Project Do You Film and, and the opportunities that are being created here for people of any different identity and, and stories and production alike. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, women behind the camera, what differences does it make to have a woman behind the camera? Um, for example, how does it change what happens in front of the camera? How does it affect what the audience sees on screen? And I know you mentioned that a little bit, Sheila, but mm -hmm. let's go into that a little bit more. Yeah. So like having women in other male-dominated professions, it makes all the difference to have women behind the scenes in key roles, right? So in terms of when it comes to Hollywood, again, the old boy network is at work, right? So you mm -hmm. have men hiring other men. Um, and so a lot of um, perspectives and protagonists tend to be the same, right? Mm -hmm. And so this does a couple of things. One, you... When you have, just as Sheila or Dr. Schroeder was saying, just as you have um, people behind the scenes, they're the ones making decisions in terms of hiring staff. So mm. coming with the territory who's director or cinematography, there's a lot of opportunities in terms of employment. And oftentimes um, white, straight men, cis men will hire the same like-minded people versus women and people of color tend to hire um, women and people of color, right? Same thing goes with journalism, right? So when you look at the origins of journalism, research shows that female journalists time and again 
men, along with um, journalists of color, are more likely to interview an array of different people for their stories. Mm. Um, and this is not the same for their white male counterparts. The same thing is playing out in the mainstream film and television industry, right? Mm. Who's hiring who? Who's giving um, opportunities in that respect? And then also in terms of this has ramifications for who we see in protagonists on screen. So if you're more likely to see um, other perspectives, not just that of a straight, white, cisgender man, um, you can really bring about a lot of passions for different people in terms mm -hmm. of inspiring to be different facets of their identity, including if you want to go back to occupation, right? So mm -hmm. I'll bring in um, a, just a short anecdotal uh, example from my previous institution where I taught, I had screened a documentary on women firefighters exclusively. And during the post-filmic discussion, one of my students was really candid in saying that they didn't even realize that women could be firefighters. They never saw it on wow. screen and they assumed mm. that this translated <laughs> off screen. And in many respects, it does, because if you can't see it on screen, you don't know that that's a position that's available right. to you. Absolutely. And so again, it's not just what's happening on screen, but this has wide ramifications, both who's working behind the scenes, but also for the audience as well and mm. the takeaways in that respect. Mm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the misconceptions of women in film that you see? Oh, I hear a lot of them. So <laughs> one of the biggest ones I probably hear is that women simply aren't interested in filmmaking. Mm. And this is one I tend to laugh at a lot, yeah. just like Dr. Schroeder <laughs> yeah. here. It's because this person, whoever ends up saying this, clearly mm. doesn't have any um, take on film history, right? So if you go back to the early days of film, women were very involved, right? Mm. Very uh, invested. And if you look back to specifically research shows that at least 50%, probably around 75 to 90% of um, scripts that were put out when the mainstream film industry was just coming about, they're written by women, mm -hmm. right? And then sadly, when um, industries start to grow and they become lucrative and show signs for profitability, right, authorship suddenly becomes relegated to men's work. And so what was happening even by the 1930s, screenwriting was heavily a male-dominated profession in Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. um, another fact that doesn't help is how the studio system was restructured in 1931 as opposed to how it was from 1908 to 1930. Mm -hmm. What One of the biggest things that happened was um, the dividing lines across production jobs, specifically when it dealt with women and gender, basically, was much more rigid. Mm -hmm. um, and it's left women basically relegated to the sidelines in more uh, supportive roles, not just for screenwriting, but elsewhere in top behind the scenes. Um, and as we've been saying before, you know, these are the roles that allow more opportunities for people that, that can then hire other people as well and give more opportunity in that respect. And that's probably um, the biggest one that I see. Um, interestingly enough, you know, um, 50% of film school graduates at top film schools are like USC or NYU are women. Um, and so it really needs to be looked at and honed in at what's going on from the point of graduation to actually working in the industry, hmm. right? Um, and so there's a lot of misconceptions there. And so kind of diving into what's going on with the major studios that they're not wanting to hire women at the helm of their projects. And just to follow up um, with what uh, Lauren said, the one of the problems is is that we think the gender representation um, and um, diversity has the problem has been solved, right? Um, we give a few Oscars out to um, uh, racially um, gender um, diverse programs and everything's over. But if you look at the um, the long term data, um, Dr. Martha Lausen. Um, and her folks at um, uh, out in San Diego 
uh, do have been doing studies for 20 years, actually a little bit longer, since 1997, mm. about um, especially gender equity and uh, television. Uh, they've expanded to cable, et cetera. Um, and uh, a recent study that they um, put, produced talks about the historical comparison of percentages of speaking female characters on broadcast network programs. Mm. 1997, um, we had 39% women, 61% males. 2018, 19, 44% versus 56%. Now, that might seem like, um, uh, like wow, <laughs> you know, things haven't changed. Um, it really... Uh, to 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 make that just sort of incremental that we have from 39 to 44 percent women, well that was 97, but really since 2006 and seven the needle hasn't moved at all hmm. in terms of gender representation on broadcast television. Hmm. Now we do see some, and um, I think you've probably um, talked a little bit about this already, but we do see some um, um, slight improvements when we get off of broadcast television, mm. right? When we go into a Netflix that is looking toward attracting niche audiences, for mm. instance, the Hulus, the Amazon Primes, um, so that that becomes a driving sort of corporate force in attracting specific audiences. But when we're still talking about this disparity on broadcast television, um, I just, I sort of, you know, beat my head against the wall because this is, this is the, the lifespan of my teaching career. Mm. Um, and, uh, certainly was an impetus for the kinds of things that we want to do with Project DU Film. Mm. So interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's get into our trivia section. We'll take a brief break from the conversation. Who was the first woman to be nominated for the Best Director Oscar? Stumper. I'm going to give it a go. Um, Abby, why don't you read us? Yeah, so the first woman was Lena Wertmuller. I think I pronounced that right, uh, in 1977 for, in English, it's Seven Beauties, and I'm going to do my best, Paculino Setebelesi? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So here's here's a disappearing part of our history, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then after that, it's probably Jane Campion, and then Catherine Bigelow, and then yeah, Greta yeah. Gerwig probably. Um, and one of the most interesting things about this answer for me is that she won in 1977, um, and the inaugural Oscars was 1929. That's 48 years yeah. before and she, a woman. And she didn't yeah. win. I mean, she was yeah. nominated, nominated, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now on to our second question. Of the 100 top-grossing films from 2017 to 2018, what percentage of all speaking slash named characters were women? You want to take a guess? Well, 35%. Really close. 33.1%. Okay. Good guess. Unfortunate, but good guess. 2019, folks. All right, last question here. Since Halloween was last week, and we know you love horror movies... Which famous slasher has killed the most people throughout his film franchise? Uh, most people. Freddy Krueger's kind of isolated, so I'll say Jason instead. Correct. Woo! Jason okay, of yeah. Friday the 13th with 162 victims in the span of 10 films. Ooh. I, I, I'm wondering how many of those were women. Oh. Come on. 
Probably a lot. Lauren, yeah. yeah, you've seen yeah. them all probably. Mm-hmm. A yeah. lot of them. Yeah. I stopped when they started going to Freddy versus Jason and space and stuff like that. <laughs> my but they're probably overwhelmingly women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there were 10 of them. I, I recently watched the final chapter, which I was like, oh, it's the last one. It's like the third. <laughs> <laughs> the final chapter of that volume. Yep. Yeah. In the entire series. Right. Man. Uh, I've only gotten through the first one, to be quite honest. Mm. I didn't really. I was more of the Freddy Krueger, yeah. you know, nightmares. And Love Mike that. Myers, too. Right? Yeah. yeah the latest Halloween was pretty good in 2018. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty yeah. good. Speaking of women in the in the protagonist role and, and really in representation in that film, I mm. loved I, I, I loved that variation on there. Um, all right. Back to it. So are there any current incentives that you recognize for getting more women to work in television and film? Yes, there are. I would say that they happen a lot at the state level. So, for instance, you might have states that offer higher tax incentives for um, productions to come in that employ a lot of diverse staff, not only women, but women of color, Mm. um, people of color, people of other uh, gender identities or sexual orientations. So that's one route. I would say the other one's probably in terms of more indie outlets in hopes of getting people into the industry and then later uh, independent industry and then later breaking ground with mainstream industry. Um, probably the biggest one in terms of recognition for that is probably Sundance uh, Institute works with women in film. Uh, and every year they try to put on workshops that educate like women filmmakers in particular about how financing works. And they put on workshops to really um, give strategies around pitching and um, funding questions that they can kind of target and ask mainstream um, studios. Hmm. And to, to add to that, um, what we are also seeing is that the guilds have now started um, various programs for women, people of color, um, LGBT creatives. Um, and that is that's going to move the needle uh, mm. when you have the director's guilt um, creating opportunities for women, which they have um, in the past not been very good at. Um, that's going to start to move the needle from, you know, three percent of directors of top 100, 250 grossing films, which is just insane, um, that number. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need the guilds to step up and be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing networks and we're seeing studios um, creating um, diversity writing programs. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, you'll, you'll hear at the Oscars, you'll hear it in different um, award shows that uh, it is the word, it is the written word that really is the backbone of all sort of creative enterprise and so when you have different voices in that writer's room, it makes a difference. And we've had, actually, we had one um, of our alumni go through one of the diversity writing programs at Warner Brothers, and she's now staffed on um, the new Sabrina uh, uh, mm. property. So uh, I've, se- I've seen it happen firsthand, um, and I know mm. that having those voices in the room uh, is, is a, a really important difference in creating content that isn't just um, the mainstream content that we have seen in the past. And almost on the opposite end of incentives, what's stopping women from getting into the film and television industry? So money makes the world go round, especially in the film and television industry. Women are seldom gatekeepers. Instead, it is men that tend to be um, gatekeepers of this financing system. Mm. As I was saying earlier, even though you have 50% of film school graduates are women, yet there's still such a discrepancy between men versus women 
at the helm, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so if you have um, men hiring other men and men funding other um, male projects, basically, that's one battle, basically, right? Another thing that you have is that if you don't have women in top creative positions behind the scenes, that often accompanied with um, opportunities for hiring other people, that's mm -hmm. also another hurdle. So if you don't have women financially funding their own films and you don't have women behind the scenes being able to hire other people, it makes sense why there's a lack of women in the film industry totally. And mm -hmm. I, I want to follow up on the um, the funding because um, Sundance, again, uh, one of the leaders, put out, a, uh, created a study and women were asked, well, what are some of the, the barriers? And the, there is a stereotype <clears throat> that women cannot handle budgets, big budgets or small budgets. We just can't handle money. And <laughs> what, we know, what we know from actual life is that women generally run the budgets of families. So why can't we then sort of take that knowledge into our filmmaking uh, endeavors? Uh, so that's a stereotype that women continue to battle against in um, places like Hollywood. Um, we're also, um, and this is something that hasn't been mentioned yet, critics are predominantly men. And so if, if you're reviewing something that doesn't necessarily speak to you, how are you going to fairly judge that? So this has been part of the the inclusion crisis um, that has been uh, recognized by Stacy Smith and the researchers out at the Annenberg School at, in U at USC um, to recognize that critics do have a, a, an enormous impact on how we view material coming out, right? Mm. So if we can, again, uh, recognize the bias inherent in those uh, reviews, we can continue to make progress, I think, for women and women's voices and people of color and our members of our LGBT commu communities. Okay. So this one is kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier. Um, speaking towards this idea of the boys club in the film industry, um, what is your further take on this and how, what are some solutions possibly that, you know, are, are presented in this, in this arena? Okay. So um, a couple of barriers that are caused by the Old Boys Network, Old Boys Club, it's also known as in Hollywood. Um, the first one's issue of financing. You cannot have the same people who are mostly straight, white, male, and cisgender distributing the funds. That's, that's a gatekeeper role, okay? Mm -hmm. Two, you also have those who are heads of big studios um, feeling uncomfortable to let women at the helm of their projects. And so not only an issue of funding and financing, but also the issue of comfort level is a big one. And this is where gender biases come in, exactly what Dr. Schroeder was talking about in terms of budgets. Um, this is another example in terms of comfort level. You also have the issue of double standards as well, and it's wide ranging. One can be um, the issue of male-directed films versus female-directed films. If a male-directed film flops in Hollywood, it's just business as usual because that's how Hollywood runs versus there's so much writing on women who actually have their foot in the doorway and they have the funding and backing um, that if their film doesn't do well and it doesn't do well at the box office, it's usually attributed to their gender and more, quote, proof that people aren't interested in seeing films by women, which usually get categorized and labeled as women's films, 
right? Um, and so that's another issue. Another issue that you have is um, in terms of double standards is writers. Oftentimes, major studios will only contact women for certain categories and certain genres. And so that's pigeonholing a lot of uh, women screenwriters. And then it's very circumscribed and limiting for women as a whole. Um, and so I kind of it kind of trickles down, right? So who do you have financing? Who do you have at the helm of these projects? Who do you have with the scripts? And then who do you have, you know, in general behind the scenes and top creative roles that can make hiring decisions? It, it is a complex web, for sure. And it isn't a single solution, I think. And, and we've talked about what some of those possible solutions can be. And I think when we uh, when we saw uh, at the Oscars uh, the the discussion about the inclusion writer, right? So that uh, mainstream um, A-list actors, when they come on a project, they include in their contract something called an inclusion writer. Mm. And that requires certain amount of the crew and the cast to be um, uh, diverse, right? And mm. by diverse, we mean women, people of color, members of the LG- LGBT community. Mm. So uh, our our mainstream actors are recognizing their power and they are uh, making the best use of it. Some of them, right, are making the best use of it. And I know you had some really interesting experiences with Gina Davis and uh, when you're during your time in Arkansas. Maybe you can reflect a little bit on that and yeah. the, that experience because she has certainly been a, a very loud voice for diversity and inclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, my former institution was the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And that was home to a lot of different places, Northwest Arkansas, but one of them was Walmart, um, the headquarters for Walmart. And so what was happening was the Gina David Institute was pairing up and partnering with Walmart to put on uh, the Bentonville Film Festival that was totally geared toward championing women and diversity, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And in their quota, you know, for um, submissions, but also judging criteria, because I was also a judge there as well. It was all about trying to increase the presence of um, people that don't usually get seen or heard in Hollywood, basically, right? A lot like what Project EU Film is all about in terms of giving a platform to other people who aren't necessarily just straight, white, cisgender uh, male. Um, And so I also had her come and speak. um, And even though it's funny, even though I'm discussing the same things with my students and doing the same studies, and she'll be saying the same students or studies, my students are like, oh my God, this must be a problem because she's saying it. And I'm like, we're referencing the same studies, right? right, right. It's oftentimes uh, USC and Stacy Smith um, or um, Martha Lazan with uh, San Diego State University, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's always interesting that if you're not an A-list celebrity, a lot of people won't listen to you, right? right. Um, which is the case also with the uh, sexual allegations, right? When things people knew in decades, that mm-hmm. stuff was going on with Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, and yet no one was listening until finally A-list celebrities band together, and you know, then the story really broke. Mm-hmm. And it's been really, I think, satisfying to me to see these A-list women, especially recognizing the power that they have, mm. and that when they do come together and they do speak out as not a singular voice, but as multiple voices talking, telling their stories, that. Uh, progress is made, mm-hmm. that people like Harvey Weinstein are finally um, brought to justice. And, uh, and, and we're seeing those same women, uh, some of those same women, uh, creating their own production companies. And that, again, is uh, a really, uh, boy, just a joyous sort of thing to see women 
taking control of their own careers and uh, lifting the careers of uh, those around them up. I think another facet is transparency is really key, right? So a lot of times, especially with the A-list celebrities now coming out and speaking candidly about, I made this for this picture, basically. And yet, so you can see the discrepancies in pay, even though you might have had a woman protagonist, and yet the male counterpart who probably died like 10 minutes into the film, maybe, um, was making three times as more. Right. And so just transparency and getting it out. And I know this was a big deal with the Sony email leaks where people were finally starting to see how much people were making, basically, and mm. holding people accountable. And then nowadays you have A-list celebrities who are saying that I will refuse to work on this film or the set unless I'm making the same as my male counterpart, basically. And mm. so transparency, I think, is accountability is crucial. Right. And you're seeing the male A-list celebrities saying um, I'm not going to uh, be on this project unless my female counterpart is making the same amount. Absolutely. And those are the kinds of allies that we all need. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to jump to our next question because we were already talking about the Me Too movement. But have you ever been told personally that you're not capable of doing something just because you're a woman? Sadly, yes. All my, all my life, basically. Um, I think the first time I really saw this was at home. Um, in my own home, which is oh, wow. probably shouldn't, but it's probably the same for a lot of people, right? So I remember distinctly, I was outside and my father was outside and he was working on his car and he's like, hey, Lauren, can you go get your brother, Blake, who was inside at the time? And he said, I was like, oh, why? And he's like, I want to show him how to change a tire. And I was like, oh, okay, that's awesome. I want to learn too. He's like, oh, don't worry. You don't need to know it. If you need you have a flat tire, call me or your brother. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what the hell's happening here, basically, right? Like, I, mm -hmm. I'm telling you I want to learn, and yet you're kind of shutting me down based on my gender, which was um, very eye-opening, right? Mm -hmm. um, a more recent example of this is probably when I was applying to doctoral programs, and the program that I was really uh, considering since I had done my previous degrees there were at Penn State. Um, and I had met with the head dean at that time who fortunately has since retired. Um, but he pulled me into a meeting and he said, Lauren, keep your gender studies to the side, right? If you're going to do our PhD program, you need to mm. keep gender studies to the side. And I remember leaving that meeting thinking, what is going on here? My whole existence and all my research was around analyzing media from uh, a gender studies lens. And to just have someone with such authority tell me to just push that to the side. I, to be honest, I was so upset that I didn't even send in my application. And all my letters of rec got in, and then people were starting to wonder, where's your application? And so a different dean ended up pulling me into a meeting and asked, what happened? Why didn't you submit? And I told her, I was like, this is what's happening. I can't not just do gender studies. It's it's who I am. I can't just shed that um, aspect of my identity. And so we had a really candid talk about gender that day. And she definitely knew. And she was really encouraging for me to apply and let me know that he is retiring and things are going to change. And um, and today she's the head dean now and she's doing, she's breaking waves, basically. She's mm -hmm. terrific. She's absolutely terrific. I mean, to give you an idea, when that former dean um, retired, the gender and women's studies department actually celebrated because there were so many times over the years where he said, you're bringing this speaker to campus. Well, we need two separate um, performances or talks from that person because that person can't do both communication and gender studies at the same time. And so he would re literally require two different uh, performances and aspects. And so those are just kind of two really defining moments in my life in terms of, you know, people telling me that... Um, trying to help me to shed that aspect of my life that I couldn't because it's 
my entirety, basically. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness you yeah. didn't, right? Yeah. And thank yeah. goodness that there were, there were mentors there who uh, brought you in and said, this is important work to do. Um, and thank goodness um, that former dean is <laughs> is no longer in a position of power. It's 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 the same cycle, right? It's posi- people in positions of power having control over the narrative, right? And fortunately, your narrative was not shut down. Yeah, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, it parallels exactly right. You have a head on top telling you can't do something. Unfortunately, unless someone else is there, usually a female mentor, you usually exit altogether or go to different avenues. So I'm mm-hmm. really fortunate that that wasn't the case with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very strong. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think increasing the the representation of women in media will definitely help with the misogyny that happens within our own homes because then mm. not only women but everyone else will see the power that women can have and should have within our society. And I mm. think the film industry is one of the best means to tackle this issue. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I'm going to throw a curveball here real quick. Um, so we talked a lot about your research and what coursework you're, you're um, doing currently here and preparing for at DU. Um, to start, do you have or you've been t- teaching a course right now on the horror films and gender representation. Can you talk to us a little bit about just kind of what that coursework looks like and, and kind of some of the um, key points that you are, excuse me, some of the key points that our listeners could um, benefit from in the sure. horror genre? Sure. Um, so that one is more of a first year seminar on horror films. So it's a lot of things, not only teaching horror films, but also advising and also kind of introducing first-year students to college life and academia. Hmm. Um, In that particular course, I tend to, um, let's see, separate my lesson plans and week by week by different subgenres of horror. Hmm. This way I can bring in different facets, a lot of international films. I want my students to know that it's just not America. It's just not specifically people say America, but when they actually mean just the U.S. alone. And so I try to get my students away from saying the American context. What you really mean is actually the U.S. context, right? Mm. Um, And so in that particular um, course, we've looked at a lot of things. One of the genres, subgenres that we looked at were, was the paranormal subgenre. And specifically, I use this as a platform to talking about um, J-horror, Japanese horror. Um, And we talked a lot about gender differences in terms of men's versus women's roles in terms of Japanese horror. Um, And I had my students watch the original Dark Water. And we talked a lot about how, you know, um, all horror films are basically tales of morality, cautionary tales. If you do this, this bad thing's going to happen to you. Mm. Um, And and with respect to gender in the Japanese horror context, it's a lot about anxiety about women um, becoming more progressive, women going outside the home, women um, working regular jobs and not just being tied to the household. Um, Mm. And see, these are some of the issues. I mean, even with Dark Water, the whole premise of the film is um, a couple is in the midst of a nasty divorce. The mother needs to take the child to a new home and that um, apartment building ends up being um, haunted by a little girl who her own mother abandoned her, basically. (laughs) Spoiler alert, by the end of the movie, this mother, in order to help her own daughter live, decides to self-sacrifice herself and live with the ghost for the rest of the life. So that way that ghost has a mother. And so there's heavy commentary on um, breakup of the nuclear family, um, anxiety around single mothers, anxiety about child abandonment, and really kind of who's to punish. Well, no one cared about the father who wasn't even in the child's life at all. That wasn't even, no one bat their eyes basically, right? And yet Mm. all these terrible things were happening because a mother wanted to work at the same time and not just be um, uh, a mother figure. Mm. 
That's so fascinating. I still yeah. will always hold on to our conversation about paranormal activity and the mm-hmm. idea of the recession, not gender specific, mm-hmm. but just how haunted houses and, and all those pieces were related to um, that paranormal story. So it was fascinating. And then you have another course coming up here in the spring, Real Women, R-E-E-L. Um, what does that one um, consist of? So this one is where I use um, film as a platform to talk about what people call, quote, women's issues mm-hmm. um, and around the world. It's not just you know, relegated to the U.S. context. Instead, it's about talking about, all right, we have reproductive issues. How is it represented on screen? Who's doing the representation? What's happening behind the scenes? It's also looking at a historical trajectory of women in film along the way. Um, And so I try to accomplish a lot with that one course, and maybe it's a little bit too much, but I've gotten really good reviews with that course Mm -hmm. that people um, tend to really gravitate toward it. I especially, in my upper level courses, I tend to juxtapose mainstream versus independent outlets Mm -hmm. um, and really showcase indie films because, again, it's not a panacea, but at least it's a more embracing of different perspectives, different cultures. And so my students are already used used to mainstream film. Mm -hmm. They have that context, and so they're seeing like, oh my God, if this were to be a mainstream film, this, this, and this wouldn't have happened. This person would have died off because um, of their sexual orientation, other stuff, basically. And so it's just a whole... I don't know. I tackle a lot of things in that course, basically. Mm-hmm. But again, using some of the topics we talk about, female genital mutilation, um, workplace issues, sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, and how it unfolds behind the scenes, but also in front of the camera as well. Fascinating. Students are really in for a, a, a delightful course. And yeah. by delightful, I mean like such a well-rounded course. This is, this, this is not something we've had an opportunity to, um, to offer recently. So having Lauren on staff, um, taking our students through this, uh, is just going to be a great, uh, great quarter. Well, it just shows also the value of the theoretical lens and the, you know, production lens and all these different ways to look at how film production really, uh, how in-depth film production really is, you know, in order to make something effective um, and inclusive. Um, All right. So final question here. Do you have any advice to women who are trying to make a break in the film industry? Sadly, the odds are stacked entirely against you. However, push ahead. And while you're doing so, try to help other women along the way, right? So um, when women come together with other women or people of color, nothing's impossible, Mm -hmm. right? And so solidarity is key. Solidarity was key when the first news story broke with Harvey Weinstein in 2017. Mm -hmm. And I honestly believe that solidarity will remain a catalyst for implementing change and systemic change in Hollywood in order to actually bring about change. And certainly your own life story is an example of forging ahead, finding your people, um, uh, being a part of a larger system, right? Finding that dean, that mentorship, and really about persistence, knowing who you are, what you want to study, and doing it despite the fact that people are um, working against you. Absolutely. True story. Well, that was a wonderful conversation. And just so our viewers know, Lauren De Carvalho will be back soon for another episode with us on our current research in women and incarceration. On behalf of everyone here from Moving Pictures, the Project Do You Film podcast, we'd like to thank you for your time and your wonderfully insightful advice on women's representation in film. For more information on Lauren De Carvalho, visit storylab.du.edu backslash Project Do You Film. To all you listeners out there, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Moving Pictures. Our next episode will take you behind the scenes of Project Do You Film, where we will be talking about production design with the production designer, Angela Forrester. I am your host, Ryan Rose. And I'm your co-host, Abby Scadden. We'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to and supporting Moving Pictures, the Project Do You Film podcast. As with any project, your support is what helps us continue on. For more information on how to get involved with Moving Pictures, please visit movingpixpod.com and follow us at Moving Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Project Do You Film, or Film Initiative Linked to Mentors, is a collaborative, experiential mentorship filmmaking program bringing together faculty, professional alumni, and students to create, promote, and distribute films. Project Do You Film is part of the University of Denver's 501c3 nonprofit, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you again for supporting Moving Pictures.